and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Victor, and welcome to another Film Club episode. Joining me on this episode is, uh, once again, Rosie. Welcome back, Rosie. Hi, Victor. It's nice to be back. And joining us again is Aisha. Hey, Victor. So in this Film Club, we are going to be talking about the Pixar classic Finding Nemo. Because this episode is due to go out at the end of National Marine Week. So what better movie to separate National Marine Week than uh, Finding Nemo? So Finding Nemo came out in 2003, directed by Andrew Stanton, and of course comes from Pixar. So the film is about uh, Nemo, who's a little clownfish, who ventures off the reef one day and ends up getting kidnapped by some scuba divers. And his father, Marlin, goes off to rescue him, and adventures ensue. So again, this is one of those classic movies. It came out quite a while ago, but has held up so, so well. And uh, I found, anyways, was quite a good film for... to, And I found, anyways, was a good film to watch right now. So I'm wondering what your favorite moments are from the film. Rosie, do you want to start us off? Yeah, of course. So this film has a very special place in my heart, just I'm, so, I'm sure many it does for many of you as well. The probably standout best part of this film for me is that moment when Nemo is off for his first day of school. Him and Marlin are swimming along the coral reef and there are colours everywhere. There's coral, there's sponges, there's a flatworm. Just the diversity and the life is just something that was always stuck in my head about this film. And I know that when we spoke about the Meg, I even brought this up then. Um, And that just really stuck with me for a really long time. And I think it's just gorgeous. My favourite moment, it's very, uh, very cliche, but it has to be when Marlin, all his friends are encouraging to go and touch the big boat that's slightly out from the coral reef and of course they don't know what it's called so they instead of calling it the boat they call it the butt and they go oh can't touch the butt and uh, I still I really like this even when I rewatch it because it makes you really think about what uh, what language is and how it's only you know you only think about words from what you know so if you've never seen a boat or talked about it you, uh, it's very easy to mix the words up and obviously in this uh, in this scene in a very comedic way. Yeah, I love both of those moments as well. And I love Mr. Ray, the, the teacher that comes along as well. I feel like that interaction that he has with his students, for us as educators, I think that's the moment that we always want to have and, and are quite fortunate to get every now and again. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those inspiring He's one of those inspiring teachers, like uh, Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. Oh, yeah, Magic School Bus. That takes me... Well, actually, no, I, I only watched that very recently. I think it's only a Canadian thing, right? Oh, it might be, actually. It might yeah. be American as well. It might oh, be there yeah. in, in the U.S. Yeah, but my favorite moment... I was going to say that first going to school day, because that that is an amazing moment. But otherwise, um, the other moment that always really sticks with me because of how hard I laughed the first time I saw it was when Dory speaks whale. That just like knocked me out of my seat. It was so funny. And it's still I still find it really hilarious today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've all spoken whale since then as well. On <laughs> the odd occasion, we're all convinced we can do it too. 
All right. So what did we think that the film did really well? I think we mentioned a lot of the diversity in the film, and I think it does that really well. It really brings the reef and the ocean to life. Absolutely. I think what what doesn't it do well would be the hard, like a very hard question. What does it do well? It does so many things well, in my opinion. I as for actually, since you just mentioned the whale song, it kind of made me think as well. It did. One of the things it did really well was pulling out a little bit of knowledge that some people already had and just expanding it and turning it into something magical, but also often quite scientifically accurate. So I think people sort of have a rough idea that, yep, whales make noises, um, but it really took that to the next stage. It made it really funny, really magical. Um, and they use these noises to communicate like Dory was able to. And it kind of just solidifies that little bit of information you sort of have heard somewhere. Um, and actually you have expanded on something that you already know. And I thought it did that really well throughout the whole film um, of little tidbits, just bringing them to life a little bit. I thought it just, um, again, it, uh, it really comes up with a very good conservation concept as well as what... Um, Obviously, people have always heard about what happens in coral reefs, maybe through damage or um, like pollution. But the one thing people sometimes forget is that a lot of these animals can be taken for the pet trades. So I really like how it highlights that, that another big threat to animals that live on a coral reef is that they are taken from their natural habitats. I also like the way that that message is, it's definitely there because it that's the story, right? So you really feel the impact of it. And it comes up again and again when you are in the dentist's office with the tank gang. And they're all just trying to escape and get out into the ocean. You've got Gil, who is also captured from the ocean. And so he remembers it as well. And And so, again, that thread is present of not just what's the impact on the reef of you taking fish out of it, Although it doesn't look at that from like an ecological perspective, it really zooms in on what's the impact for those individual animals. But I think that's still, you get you get kind of the sense. Mm. And then you also get the perspective of these animals in the tank as well and what might life be like for them. I think um, I completely agree with exactly what you're both saying. And it, it does have that kind of like nice soft message that you take away. Um, however, I, I read something recently and I don't have any statistics to kind of back this up, but there seems to have been after the kind of release and success of this film, a huge uptake in the number of people wanting clownfish and blue tang, Dory's species as pets. And actually that might have had a bit of a um, knock on some population numbers in certain areas. Um, like I said, I don't have anything like solid to back that up. It's perhaps a little bit more anecdotal, um, but that, that surprised me that even though there were these nice messages throughout maybe didn't quite sink in to the level you would hope i've heard that same that same report and information again i don't have any source for that but i can see that and that happens with a lot of this kind of film where it really highlights an animal makes it really cute you end up with this uptick in in them in in the pet trade which is kind of unfortunate but on the other side it also just raised awareness of them so i know it also drove visitation to a lot of organizations that do do really good work. So the Royal Ontario Museum, they've got a biodiversity gallery that features a, a coral reef tank. And after Finding Nemo came out, you had all kinds of families and kids coming to the museum and then wanting to see a Nemo or a Dory and spot them in the tank. 
but they're they're also in the context then of learning about biodiversity what are the impacts on these different animals and that tank as well because it was so popular it very frequently had someone next to it a volunteer who was there to facilitate the discussions about it so i think as ever these things are not always straightforward but i think that they're I would hope anyways that overall the the impact has been good. Yeah, I know I was I was working in a an aquarium in Canada when the film came out and um it was the first thing that kids wanted to know and I know a lot of displays that had previously had um your blue tanks and your clownfish had been very much kind of put into a side corner of a lot of aquariums uh, and the aquarium I was working at at the time was a brand new build and the coral uh, section was absolutely massive and it's specifically centered on the um fish that you that were in finding nemo because they just become so popular i think the awareness of them is quite great and um i also like uh, again going back to the accuracy of the film um i was looking up just some more information about this film and every species of fish pretty much that's depicted in the film has its own animation to kind of match the physiology which i think is amazing so the animators did a lot of work on that and visually they're all quite accurate as well like they all represent real species of fish that are out there um, even some of the ones that look a bit different like um, one of nemo's school friends the little pink octopus that's that's based on a real type of octopus as well which is great i think yeah, I think that's fantastic. Although one of the things that I have picked up from working at the museum and alongside scientists is actually that 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 specific type of octopus wouldn't have been inking. It would have been a deep sea octopus has no business hanging around a coral reef. Um, and for that reason, probably wouldn't produce ink. But I mean, how, you know, behaviorally, how, they're fish that talk at the end of the day. So I don't think we can be too harsh on that one. You spoke about um, awareness. And one of the things that was quite at the forefront of my mind, particularly having watched The Meg recently, um, was the sharks and the relationship that we had with Bruce and his um, his pals. And I thought that, that maybe, and I think this is one of the first times that I have seen sharks in a film and they weren't the bad guys. There was something bigger going on. They were interesting. They had these stories. They had different personalities. Um, and I just loved that. And making like the bad guy really was the dentist. Um, the humans were the bad guys. And it was only when Bruce smelt the blood of the fish that he kind of couldn't help his natural um, behaviors of being a hunter as much as his friends were trying to help him fight it. And I really, really love that message of just painting these these creatures in a slightly different light than maybe they had been previously. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I like that they're not just mindless eating machines that will just eat and eat and eat. Yeah, I really like that. But I did, I wanted to look into that because like, oh, I wonder if there are any herbivorous sharks like i wonder because what are these sharks eating if they're not eating fish i don't know um and it turns out there is one type of shark that is not a herbivore but is probably an omnivore is the bonnethead sharks and they found that they eat quite large amounts of seagrass but they're still not totally sure on if they're digesting the seagrass and extracting nutrients from them which would be the the like technical requirement to be an omnivore and what they think might be happening um, because 
they find that younger bonnethead sharks have more seagrass in their stomach. So maybe what's going on is that when they're eating, they're eating seagrass by accident. I think it's ending up in their stomach. But still, it's more than half of their stomach contents can be seagrass. And that, to, to me, feels like it's quite possible that they are omnivores. So maybe that's what these guys are doing. I also quite liked that while you saw a lot of diversity on the reef, as the journey goes on, you get a kind of a tour through the ocean, through different ecozones, and the amount of life that you see dwindles away. So even as um, Marlin is going after Dory, after he first meets her, and they're heading farther and farther out to sea, the number of other fish around dwindles down until it's basically just the two of them. And that's just a much more realistic picture of what goes on in the ocean. Um, you do get, you know, really high biodiversity and density in shallow waters around reefs. But when you're in the open ocean, you know, it's so big and so vast. There's so much space there that actually, you know, the odds are that you won't see very much when you dive in an area. So I, I do like that, that it kind of provides a, a bit of a more realistic image of the ocean than a lot of other, particularly animated movies, which show you the ocean. You know, they they want to keep you engaged and active. And so they put a lot of animal life around in in the movies. But um, it's not quite the way it is. You just have these pockets where there is lots of life and lots of activity, but often they're moving around. So, yeah, I thought they did that really well. I like the um, the diversity, like you said, as well, and how that continued through the film as they moved. And also when they came above water as well, we had seabirds. Um, and it wasn't just fish. We had like all sorts of different invertebrates. There were crabs. Of course, in Dory, there's an octopus. But in the tank, there's peach, the starfish. So I really do feel like they were trying to incorporate as many different species. There was no species blindness um, necessarily in terms of the animals covered in this. I felt like they did a really good job of covering those different things in the different uh, right places. And giving a lot of uh, really useful fun facts, but without making it seem too educational i suppose when they they give you a lot of facts about jellyfish they the fact it's only the tentacles that are the stingers mm -hmm. and how sea turtles get around and what currents they use as well i thought that was all really good base knowledge that could really spark viewers interest as well like oh i didn't realize they were that cool if that's one cool thing about them what other cool things might we be yeah i really like that there's a lot of really good little facts that Marlin finds out along his journey. Is I think everyone learns about sea turtles being 150 years old. I really love the sea turtles as well. Crush and Squirt are such great characters, and they don't have a big appearance in the film, but I think they, they're they really significant, particularly in terms of their relationship. Like Crush's relationship to Squirt is really different from Marlin's relationship to Nemo. It's a really good counterpoint to them. So you've got you know, Marlin and Nemo, right at the beginning, Nemo is so excited. He like bounces out of the anemone and he gets stuck in like a little tube coral or something. Marlin immediately jumps over there and pulls him out. That's really different from Crush and Squirt because Squirt at one point, he's he falls out of the current. And again, you see Marlin, he really is super concerned. He jumps to it. He wants to rush off, but he ends up being held back by Crush, who says like, oh, no. Let's wait and see what he does. And that's is a very different way of dealing with, with risk. 
And particularly as an environmental educator, we kind of are facilitating kids' interactions with the natural world. And I personally always try to aim for Crush's reaction to monitor the situation, like make sure there's no really serious risk, but let them sort it out for themselves to figure out how to do it. Because then that's a new skill that he's learned, right? So now Squirt knows how to get back into the current. He's done it once before and Crush is there to be really supportive, gives him like high fives. It's like, yeah, that was awesome. You did it. And that kind of encouragement breeds just a really different relationship, right? Like Squirt is super confident and really well supported. I think sometimes what people can feel is that if you do that, it feels maybe like you're neglecting your child, you're not looking after them. But the thing that as I was thinking about this, the thing that I noticed was that Marlin freaks out, but Crush is there immediately. So Crush is aware of what's going on with Squirt. He knows what's going on and, you know, he knows that there's no serious danger there. So he allows it to happen. And I think that's a perspective that a lot of outdoor educators and parents can take with the kids. You can facilitate their interaction with nature by being really aware of the surroundings, being aware of what's going on with the child, but that doesn't mean you need to intervene as soon as there's any tiny element of risk you know you can judge based on what their capabilities are and let the kids deal with the situations themselves if if you think that they're capable i feel like that was a nice sort of reflection as well on their their different species um we know that turtles probably when they're very little are solitary and don't really get much parental care um, and i'm not saying yeah like you said Crush had a much more hands-off approach. He was he was still there, wasn't necessarily a solitary thing, but you know definitely more hands-off. Where we know that anemone fish, clownfish, do live together. They can be quite defensive as well when they're living together. They're looking out for predators all around and are a little bit wary. So I felt like that was a nice reflection on the actual behaviour of those different species too. I do also like that it was Marlin was left to look after the eggs and in the movie it's due to that heartbreaking scene at the beginning which again just like broke my heart (laughs) but in in the wild that's what would happen the female would lay eggs and actually would be cared for mostly by the male who would you know look after the eggs would fan them with the fins to ensure that there's like fresh water and oxygen supply going over the eggs And so while it serves a narrative purpose, it does also reflect reality. I suppose we we can't talk about Finding Nemo and Anemone Fish without talking about the strange thing that does happen in Anemone Fish's societies when a member of that community does pass away. Yes. When you've got a group of Anemone Fish, you'll have a lead male and female, and they're the largest pair. The female... The lead females can be the largest fish in that school of fish. And then the second largest one will be a male. But if the female dies, then the male actually will become a female. It's very strange. So really what should have happened after Coral died is uh, Marlon shouldn't have been Nemo's dad. He should have become Nemo's mom. I think it's a really cool story. It wouldn't have worked for the film. But I think awareness that that and this species is so fluid and sequential like that I think is a real nice thing to know um we often think of things as like being quite binary and I think there's a real nice story for people to learn about as you learn about an enemy fish they're a little bit different like that and yeah, it's, yeah. it's great <laughs> 
I I really like the the fact though that for this film it was the dad though that was the one that was in this very overly caring very kind of paternal role because sometimes I think it's it can be things that are missed out on especially in a lot of films maybe the father will be there but he's still this very like you know love and support but from a distance which is kind of that classical what we've been grown to think of a father role as as I love that this is a dad role where he's overprotective and he's I can't actually think of any other movies where um, or cartoons I suppose where you've got that very very important caring parental figure in that role yeah it is a very it's a very sensitive and vulnerable relationship I think between Marlon and Nemo so between father and son and I think I think you're absolutely right. Father-son relationships are often not depicted as as vulnerable. In fact, the the relationship is often about hiding vulnerability or making yourself appear invulnerable, right? It's about like taking it on the chin, walking it off. And this this relationship is not that. Marlon is so attached and invested in Nemo and it's it's a position that's normally reserved for for mothers in films. So I, I think it is good that they didn't go the 100% accurate route and have Marlon become the mum. But I like that at the beginning you do get the backstory. So even though he can, I think he can seem a bit overbearing at times, you sort of understand why that is and you can empathize with him completely. It's absolutely understandable why his relationship with Nemo is the way that it is. But I also am so impressed with how the film deals with Nemo's perspective on that and in that first few minutes on that first day of school you can see how close the two of them are and you can see how much Marlon cares about Nemo and you can see that Nemo on some level understands that you know oh my dad really cares about me he really loves me he wants to help me and protect me but when Marlon is put in that really stressful situation when Nemo is was about to swim off the reef to the um to the drop off and then Marlin tells him no Nemo you think you can do these things but you just can't and you can see that that moment Nemo gets this sense that oh he doesn't believe in me that mm. is that why he's doing all of this he just doesn't think that I can do these things that kind of resentment can be there and this goes back to different ways of managing safety and the potential outcomes of that because Marlin saying that is the impetus for Nemo to swim off towards the boat right it's an act of rebellion so Nemo takes a bigger risk than he would have done you know if he'd been allowed to just play with his friends they probably would not have gone very much farther and would have been able to get back to the reef back to safety much more quickly but he's pushed into a riskier behavior because of the way that his father has has treated him and reacted to that situation. And that kind of thing is there's there's some indication of that in research into managing risk and in safety where putting up too many safety measures and preventing kids from being exposed to any risk can lead them to take riskier behaviors either as rebellion or because they can't judge the risk accurately because they haven't been taught how to. In this case, Marlon's been shielding him completely from risk. So you can see Nemo might not be able to appreciate just how dangerous the drop-off really can be. And I suppose a nice additional character to think about in that as well is Gil, 
when we get to the tank, we've got Gil, who becomes a sort of a role model for Nemo because he also has a what they call a bad fin. Um, and he takes this role of kind of challenging Nemo, being a little bit more explicit about maybe pushing him to do slightly dangerous things, but really does care about him and doesn't want him to get hurt. But actually, that encouragement of him in a slightly different way is a nice juxtaposition from we've got Marlin and Crush as like a third way, um, which isn't without its flaws, of course, but it's it's got a nice contrast there. I also think uh, Dory really helps Marlin as well in his understanding of of risk as well, because Dory's somebody, obviously, you, she's got complex and additional needs. And through that friendship, he realises how much she does and is able to look after herself in in many like capacities as well. So I think meeting Dory makes him realise how much you know you can adventure and you can branch out, but it's okay and it it does actually give more layers and enjoyment to life. I think Dory is obviously such a great character, so funny. And her memory is a real nice sort of nod to this belief that I definitely grew up thinking that fish have three second memories and they become quite a different entity when you realize that actually, no, they don't have three second memories. They live complex lives. They need to remember what they eat. They need to remember their friends, what the, what's dangerous. Um, and I think they take on a whole different sort of level of importance when you realize that they don't just have three second memories and really opens up these complex lives that these animals are living. I think one of my most favorite things about this whole film in general is the attention to detail in the animation of the species. Watching it when I was younger, when this first came out, it was just amazing, awesome, loved it all. But watching it now as someone who's spent a bit more time in the ocean than I had then, a bit more time around wildlife, I've started to notice little bits and pieces like the scratches on the bellies of the sharks, the barnacles on the whale, all sorts of little bits and pieces that are there for the person who wants that little bit of extra reality. And I just absolutely love that. Watching it again last night, really, really nice to see. Uh, and, and while normally I'm a bit iffy on anthropomorphizing animals, but in this case, I think they've done it quite well where they've kind of they've looked at the behavior and the way the different fish swim and they've kind of given them characteristics to match. I, I read actually that many of the um, members of the animation team and the production team were invited to go diving and take lectures and really learn about the the fish and the species that they were animating. But interestingly, they actually studied dogs, dogs' faces and based the facial expressions of the different fish on expressions from dogs, which surprised me. Yeah, that would, I was going to say that would make most sense. Like they've I read a study that said of all the animals, because we've co-evolved with dogs for so long, we're able to, you know, when people go, oh, no, my dog totally knows what I'm thinking. It does, because they've evolved to, you know, those tiny little micro expressions. They, they can read them the same way you can read when a dog's angry, happy, hungry sleepy, tired, but you wouldn't be able to do the same way, well, unless you work closely with horses, for instance. Mm. So yeah, that would make a lot of sense using those kind of still animal features, but the features that we recognise very clearly, very easily. 
Let's go back to the humans in this film. So there's not very many. We've got the dentist, and then we've got his niece. We've got Darla, and she's very scary. And because we see it from, you know, the fish's point of view, you, you can see why she's scary. And I think that that's really great because a lot of kids will have exactly her reactions, right? They want to know, they want things, the animals to be moving and swimming around and doing stuff. And so they'll tend to shake creatures in containers to like wake them up. They'll tap on the fish tanks to like get them to swim or get them to come over or something. And seeing it from the fish's point of view from the inside is a great perspective to get. Yeah, especially if you've if you've ever been to having worked in an aquarium, one of the most common conversations I'll ever have with families is, "Oh, please don't bang on the tap on the tank." Um, oh, why? Because it scares them. And people find it very hard to associate fish and other sea animals with having the same sorts of fears and feelings as other animals. So sometimes they forget that, yeah, they, they get scared and they don't they don't want to be they don't want to be scared when they're just swimming around minding their own business. So I, I really liked that part of the film. Yeah, I think also hearing the taps from inside the tank is another thing, because that's something that, again, people don't really maybe realize is how much better sound travels through water. So when when you tap on the outside of a tank, it doesn't sound very loud to us, perhaps. But when you're inside in the water, it is very loud. You know, you can kind of get a sense of the same thing if you put your ear down on a table and just tap your finger on the table. It sounds incredibly loud because, of course, sound travels better through a liquid, but it travels even better through a solid. So yeah, like tapping on a glass can be very loud, very scary for for those poor fish. And then that's why it encourages them to move, right? Because you're frightening them, <laughs> poor fish. I think there was something about Dala though that she she was quite innocent. She didn't know that she was doing wrong. Even though she was scary and she was a bit of a baddie, I think there was a a bit of a connection that maybe audience members might subconsciously draw between themselves is that she she just wanted to cuddle the fish. I don't think she was realizing that harm. Whereas I think the dentist, the diver himself, taking fish from the reef, it obviously wasn't his first time because Gil came from the open ocean too. Um, perhaps he's a little bit more responsible as an adult, being more aware of the issues that might come from removing wild animals from their natural habitat. I definitely agree that the Darla's innocence, you, you know, she's just behaving the way any child would. Mm. So I, I wonder what um, being a kid and watching that and seeing Darla, how that would make a, a kid feel about how they should react to animals as well. I like that it's not she's not really vilified. You know, yeah. it's she's scary, but it's clear she's not doing it to be like mean. Yeah. Was there anything you thought that the film maybe didn't do as well as it could have? I think the only thing for me that I thought might have been was the idea that um, obviously once animals are, are captive bred or they've been like accustomed to being captive animals, it's it's not it, they should never be re, re, like released into the wilds. Maybe they should be released into a bigger tank or taken to a facility that, you know, gives them all of the perks of the wild, but they're still able to be cared for and food is provided. So I thought maybe the idea of them just going back into the ocean gives this false sense that that can happen to animals that have been captive bred. 
That's true. And really far away from their normal habitat, right? Like Sydney Harbour is would not be the appropriate habitat for those fish. There's not even any coral reefs in Sydney Harbour. We'd have to go up towards, I suppose, Manly or around to the northern beaches before you got anywhere near that kind of environment. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. What could have been highlighted a bit better is the difference in water quality in different areas. And you can see it in the film and how it's animated. When the whale drops the moth just outside Sydney Harbour and the water's super cloudy. And similarly, after Nemo gets flushed down the drain, you can see that there's these sewage pipes that go you know, under the water, under the harbour. And you can see that there is a difference in the water quality. There's not as much fish and other wildlife around. And you get this sense that the water isn't as clean um the pipe is is super covered in algae that kind of thing the water the color of the water is slightly greenish as well so it might be a bit eutrophic where there's lots of nutrients encourages lots of algal growth so it's there in the film but it's not really called out as a problem it's interesting because if you think that if this film was created today you would imagine there would be a lot more of a stronger message about plastic pollution. Plastic pollution in the ocean has become a real hot topic over the last few years, thanks to loads of great work and awareness. Um, and I, I imagine this film didn't necessarily predate plastic pollution. That's been going a long time, but it predated people being aware and it being something acceptable and interesting for people to talk about. So that's an, it's, I wonder if it was recreated now how much plastic we would see in it because I do feel like it would rise to that challenge of incorporating that sort of narrative. Any recommendations for folks who'd like to get a bit more into marine biology, learning more about fish? Finding Dory. (laughs) Yep I would definitely recommend Finding Dory because it is maintains the same level of excellence I think. Fish are they're not always bright and colourful to be interesting so go along to any of your local ponds streams and if you just sit quietly enough you'll get to see lots of really really cool little fish even though they're not as brightly coloured and fancy but you'll still get to learn a lot about them in the rivers and streams just around your house as well or by the seaside if you're lucky enough to be by the beach oh yeah go rock pooling that'd be excellent excellent thing to do for national marine week go rock pooling at a beach near you the only one last thing I'd say to anybody who has watched Finding Nemo and is thinking, I really, really want to get a tank and fill them with all those fish from the movie, is just bear in mind they are the hardest fish to keep alive. You need to make sure that you've got a heater, you need to have a filter. It's very, very expensive and they they take a lot of maintenance, more so than if you were to get a dog in a lot of respect. Last thing I would suggest along those lines is to Go for captive bred fish if you can, as much as possible, because it reduces pressure on wild populations, a lot of which are suffering from collection for the aquarium trade. Last thing I have are some aquarium recommendations. So if you do want to see the fish, these kinds of fish, and don't have access to a place where you can go scuba diving or snorkeling, there are loads of lovely aquariums in and around London. For me, anyways, my favorite aquarium is the Horniman Museum's Aquarium. Not only because they feature a lot of UK habitats, which I think is very uncommon to find in an aquarium, but also because they do a lot of research on corals and coral breeding, which is 
fantastic. They're one of the first places in the world that managed to get coral to breed in captivity. So they also do really good research work. Uh, Vancouver Aquarium in Canada, really, really great uh, aquarium. They do a lot of work up and down the West Coast and they do a lot of rescues as well. So they don't just have animals that they've brought in. They do do a lot of rescues as well. Really, really nice aquarium. And last aquarium for me would probably be the best aquarium I've been to is Monterey Bay Aquarium. That's it for another Film Club episode. Thank you very much, Rosie and Aisha, for coming along and uh, chatting Finding Nemo. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Victor. So if you've got any questions or comments, of course, please do send them in to us. If you disagree with anything we've had to say, by all means, send us an email. The email is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. And as always, full show notes are available at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Thank you very much for listening.